Hello and welcome to Unpacking Contract Law, the UK-based contract law podcast delivering unsolicited opinions on new and old contract law cases. The purpose of these podcasts is to provide you with an insight into our thoughts, ideas and ideologies around all things contract law. It also provides us with an outlet for all our opinions, so you listen at your own peril. Each podcast will feature a new contract law case with a discussion from three contract law enthusiasts. And it is thus my great pleasure to introduce you to Maggie Hemsworth, Severine Santier, and myself, Tim Dodsworth. Welcome to Unpacking Contract Law. Welcome, dear listener. Uh, This is uh, another podcast in our series. This one is Times Travel Limited and Pakistan International Airways Corporation. Another one where the Supreme Court has been rather busy, I think, rather preoccupied with contract law recently. So here's another one. Um, This is a sad story of monopoly power, I suppose, as a short introduction. And the legal topic is that of economic duress, uh, which is quite a difficult topic. But anyway, um, if I start with the key facts and the decision and uh, a little bit of the reasoning, uh, then uh, I will ask uh, my esteemed colleagues here, so Dr. Tim and Dr. Severine, uh, for their views about things. So anyway, the basic facts are these. Uh, Pakistan Airways have been in dispute with Times Travel as to commission earned by Times Travel uh, on the sales of airline tickets. And I said a few minutes ago, it's a sad story of monopoly power. Well, effectively, Pakistan International Airways uh, had the sort of monopoly control over the flights that Times Travel were able to sell uh, into Pakistan. And Pakistan Airways gave Times Travel an ultimatum. Uh, So accept reduced ticket allocation, actually quite a savage reduction, from 300 down to 60 for a fortnightly period, and waive, that is, give up any claims for alleged unpaid commission, um, or uh, um, have no further tickets at all. And there was some uh, indication that the ticket allocation would increase if they caved in, basically. And Pakistan Airways uh, believed, apparently, that it was not liable to the commission that Times Travel were were claiming. So this looked like hard-nosed commercial negotiation and use of monopoly position. And I suppose uh, uh, the subtext is, is this abuse of monopoly position. Uh, But using the guise or dressing, if you like, of uh, economic duress. And here's a little bit of law coming now. Uh, For economic duress, you need three things. An illegitimate threat. So this is the question, what is legitimate and what is illegitimate? Plus a causational linkage, not difficult in this case. In other words, um, times travel did respond purely because of the threat. Uh, And then the third one is no reasonable alternative but to agree. And that also was quite easy to show, I think, for times travel. So all of this dispute really centred on, was this an illegitimate threat? And the decision was unanimous in the end. That is, no duress, contract not voidable, contract good. Um, You know, uh, the the, pressure applied was part of the rough and tumble, one could say that, of uh, commercial life, rather a hard-nosed approach. So I I might describe this myself as this is a hawkish uh, approach rather than a dove-like approach. Um, And Lord Hodge spoke for the majority, so uh, give a nod to the others. That's Lords Reed, Lloyd-Jones and Kitchen. They all agreed with Lord Hodge. And Lord Burroughs is a bit interesting, um, A, because he's an academic by background, but B, because uh, he took a a different view. And you may, listener, uh, make some assumptions about the different view, possibly because of his background. I don't know. But anyway, that's a thought I just throw out. So the the key points were um, the Supreme Court, by majority, confirmed the existence of the doctrine of lawful act duress. That is to say, it can be duress to make the contract voidable, even though what you are threatening to do is lawful in the sense of within your strict legal rights. And English law, this will upset Severine now, does not have a general principle of good faith. It does respond to bad faith, but it's not very responsive to good faith, if that makes any sense at all. Um, And then the second point is, um, that said, it's unlikely or unusual, it's going to be the rare case 
where you can make lawful act duress stick as a claim. And you can see if you look back over the facts of the Times Travel one, Times Travel failed there. So it's going to be a pretty radical or extreme uh, instance of where uh, this is economic duress, although what you are threatening to do is within your legal rights. And the way in which, interestingly, the majority get to this is to say, well, the test, if you like, of what is illegitimate, we're going to apply the test that equity, equity law rather than the common law, has traditionally sort of used to police, if I can say this, bad faith in a, in a very general sense. And it's that very strange word, or, uh, unconscionability, or what is unconscionable. So this is an ancient word, really. I think it goes back to the 15th, 16th century. It, it is about the lack of conscience. So I guess it's the nearest you can say that the law gets to a sort of morality test in terms of a, as opposed to a legal test uh, as to what how people are behaving. And normally the common law is about strict rights and what you're legally entitled to do. Uh, but equity softens that or is more sophisticated, depending on your uh, viewpoint, and will police what it would call unconscionable behaviour. So the focus will be on the nature of the threat and its justification. And it's going to be quite a rare instance for uh, unconscionability to be engaged in the realm of economic duress. But as a matter of principle, it's there. Now, Lord Burroughs would say um, same result. He doesn't disagree with the outcome, but his reasoning and the steps to get to that was, I think, in fairness, Severine might disagree, Tim might disagree with me, but I think quite different. So uh, he has this concept of bad faith but not stressed, he stressed it quite clearly, not as the European concept would know it, uh, but a very specific, quite narrow concept of bad faith. That is uh, knowingly uh, um, <clears throat> not believing in the rightness of what you're doing. So that's going to be, if we apply Lord Burroughs' test, uh, an entirely subjective test, pretty difficult to prove in practice and actually very narrow. And I, I don't know what uh, my colleagues think about this, but I would say uh, it doesn't really stand uh, happily with existing common law approach. That, uh, that is this idea of not genuinely believing something is not commonly articulated in, in other rules and principles of English common law, at least in contract law. So it's sort of striking in its, perhaps I might say, originality. So that's the sort of background. We, we could say much more about the comparative position, for example. It's not just England that is struggling with this. Um, if you look at the judgment, um, other countries are struggling with this. So, for example, there was a, a note to, uh, given to Australia. Any listener there from Australia? Uh, it's not entirely clear what the Australian position would be, for example. Um, it's not entirely clear that Australia recognises lawful act duress, seemingly not in New South Wales, for example. It is recognised apparently in New Zealand uh, and in Canada, uh, but the decisions there seem to be quite uh, low level uh, in terms of the hierarchy of their court system. In the US, they do adopt this concept of good faith. And I guess that Severine would say it's not a problem for the continent either because of the general principle of good faith. So now, finally, with that, I get I get to some questions. Uh, so throw it out to my colleagues. Are you with Lord Hodge et al., the majority, if you like, the tyranny of the majority? Or, or are you a supportive of Lord Burroughs? And I guess I'm thinking that Tim, being a quiet fan, say it very quietly, but a quiet fan of Lord Burroughs would say, yes, Lord Burroughs has got it right. What do you think? I think you're quite right that I am a quiet, quiet fan. I, I'm not quite sure why I'm quiet on that, actually. There's no need to be, is there? There's no need to be. Exactly. There's no real need. I, if, if anything, in this podcast, I think we've made it quite clear where our alliances lie. But the amount of references to, to good faith and bad faith, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing in this <laughs> podcast, because I get the feeling this is going to be a purely... <laughs> oh, you mean, I can't, I can't oh, knock you wow. off the fence. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're still sitting on the fence here. Yeah? So I'm, I'm going to hand over straight away to Severine to, to, to get this off her chest. 
list, but you are quite right. I am I'm a little on the fence, although I must admit, I mean, we have to say, Andrew Burroughs makes a very convincing argument, I think. Um, what I did found, find interesting with the reference to other jurisdictions was, of course, Andrew Burroughs has written a paper on the lack of comparative analysis in the Supreme Court, and it's quite telling then that the Supreme Court, and not really Andrew Burroughs, go ahead and then do a comparative piece. So I think that in itself is telling, but that's just a side note. Severine, I will hand over to you with with, with what you think on the on, on whether you agree with Andy or not. I think what I find interesting in, in this decision is that both sides, uh, so of course, you know, Lord Hodge et al, as you mentioned, maybe the start first and then it's Lord Burroughs. So ha- not ha- you know, having looked at it chronologically, not peaked, at what Lord Burroughs for a while I was con- I, I thought oh God, it, it, Lord Burroughs is, is bound to be disagreeing and coming up with a different decision so I was quite surprised that actually they agree that there is no duress and both sides so to speak go into great length on explaining where they agree and where they have considerable ground so Maggie and I having talked briefly about it before this podcast waiting for uh, him I can I can see my, my first reaction was well I they agree so much I'm not entirely sure I I see the distinction but being guided by Maggie as ever it's true that uh, Lord Burroughs is quite a bit narrower and therefore probably quite which that surprised me actually looking at his argumentation so both agree that indeed as you said Maggie there needs to be and 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 there is indeed but the element of what amounts to an illegitimate pressure so I guess having now considered these, perhaps Lord Burroughs' subjective is subjective approach is much more difficult to establish, and therefore perhaps more conservative than I would have thought would be the case. So it's based on the threatening party creates or increases the vulnerability demand, which is made in bad faith that no general genuine belief that it has uh, a right. Quite a conservative. Um, mm, but how the heck are you going to prove that? Well, that's the difficulty that I have with Burroughs because they go on. So what I find interesting in the decision is that both the Lord Hodge and Lord Burroughs go on about the fact that there is the, the law should not effectively interfere, that you know the law is not here for telling us what is socially or morally acceptable and that as long as you're not doing anything that is against competition law, then it's okay. And I have a trouble with that because then, then they use Lord Stein's expectations of honest men and then they go on about there is a little bit that, you know, yes, so we don't have good faith because, of course, good faith is this dreadful thing that gives judges too much discretion. But is that not, you know, the courts do make judgment as to what is socially and morally, well, maybe not morally, but by looking at, you know, the justification of honest men and uh, I, I think that is the reasonable expectation. Therefore, the t- it is what is socially acceptable in commerce. So I don't really have, I don't quite understand why they are so frightened of making a judgment that is socially acceptable, because I think in a way that is exactly what it is when looking at interpretation, they refer to common sense, uh, whether such, you know, by reference to what is happening on the trade uh, in a particular trade, in a particular commercial community, all these are completely objective standards. Um, And so therefore, it is absolutely clear that um, there are certain behaviour which are socially in terms of economic behavior which are not acceptable so well can i jump in there and say well perhaps perhaps they would respond and say well we are aware of that and that has been an issue in our reasoning because we haven't uh, ruled out the possibility of lawful act uh, economic duress It, it it is part of english law And that is a very low level, but nevertheless, some policing of commercial behaviour. And what you're suggesting, 
should be in place is something more interventionalist than that still. And that's possibly the sticking point for a traditional court like the Supreme Court. I I don't know whether that is a sticking point, but it seems to me that what they are saying, we don't want to do it and yet we are doing it, but because we don't want to be seen to be doing it, we're not going to do it, if you know what I mean. No, it's it's a case of never say never. Well, yeah. All right, so never rule out the possibility of uh, lawful act economic duress because the circumstances may be so extreme and morally, I would use that word pointedly now, commercially unacceptable, lying, for example, forging documents, for example. Um, That would be extreme behaviour that ought to be policed by the law. And I think the majority are recognising that, that the the law would come in disrepute and people would lose faith in the common law if there was no possibility of lawful act, economic duress, making that contract voidable and of no effect. So the fact that they have said never say never, I think is a, a recognition of that, of the social pressures. But I, think? I think it seems to me that they have agreed that the lawful act of duress exists because precedent tells us that it exists. Well, it's a bit wobbly though, isn't it? We don't, we don't really have really clear law on it. That's why it's gone to the Supreme Court on this one. I think the closest one to it would have been uh, Lord Hoffman in CTN. But from memory, that wasn't a Supreme Court House of Lords. That was a that was a lower level. So that that's why this is it's needed to have gone to the Supreme Court. Yeah, but if we compare it to the CTN, what is added? What does the Supreme Court tell us that we didn't know before? Well, I suppose I would say to that is that there has been a very elegant and neat way of reasoning this through. And I think that is the most interesting part about it to my, to my mind anyway, is, is a sort of historical approach because what this quite conservative group of uh, law lords has, has said is uh, this would be a very good example for the need of the common law thread, if I put it that way, and the equity thread of law to really be entwined closely together so you, you no longer see the different colours from those different branches of law. You know, it's taken 150 years plus, really, this idea of the fusion of equity and the fusion with the, with the common law. That actually, what's, what Lord um, Hodge is doing now, very elegantly, I would suggest, is to say uh, almost explicitly, the common law learns from equity. Yes, I would agree with that. And we are now taking on the terminology of equity and the approach of equity. And uh, duress, if you think about it, is almost like, not the mirror image, but a sort of related sibling to undue influence. Yes. And students often have difficulty with this because undue influence is a separate body of law which has been developed Uh from the 15th century, effectively, by the courts of equity. Whereas duress, quite separately, historically, has been developed through the common law courts. And never the twain shall meet, as it were, unless until we get to 1873, 1875. And this concept of of the law saying this is crazy, that we have some courts for historical reason dealing with equity and other courts dealing with the common law. And they, they, they sort of jar against one another. Now is the time. That's what they said in the Victorian era in 1873. Now is the time to abandon that separation, as it were, and to fuse the two branches of law together. So I think this is very elegant way of doing it. 150 years too late, possibly. But, you know, we're, we're doing it. Uh, we learn all the time. And he's saying he's trying to say, I think, to us. The common law constantly learns from equity, and I suppose vice versa. But in an, in an area like this, a topic like this, where you're talking about policing good and bad behaviour, that's traditionally not really the comfort zone, if I can put it that way, of the common law. It is entirely the comfort zone of equity. So naturally here, the common law has much to learn from equity in this little tiny bit of this tiny corner of, of problems, as it were. And so he's saying, let's let's take root and branch effectively 
the approach that equity would take here. And so I see that as terribly elegant and neat and also logical. Just have these concepts of unconscionability, which are not novel, not new, but just uh, not really the common phraseology used for the common law. Tim, you've been very quiet. <laughs> well, let me, let me, yeah, exactly. I've, I've view, just noticed I've gone very quiet. You've got to come on. I need to have a view. Come now. on, come on then. Well, I think, I mean, uh, go on then. I'll jump off Before and I, I won't tell pushed, you which direction. I'm going to push you if you don't do it. <laughs> Um, so, Severine, uh, you you said, you know, what's what, what have we learned from this? I think one one thing that we have learned, and and definitely from Boa's um, uh, argument, as it were, is is where the line is in relation to CTN cash and carry. In other words, he says quite clearly that had had they done so in bad faith, had they made the threat in bad faith, then that would have been the line which, you know, that's where we cross the line. Mm. So I I think... Uh, But his concept of bad faith, do you mean? This... uh genuinely not believing in your exactly right, the subjective sort of the subjective right. the subjective test yeah. and i'll come on to okay. that because i i don't have as much issue with yes. that subjective test yes. at least taken together with hugh beale's um test as it were when he talks about the demand being coupled with um what goes substantially beyond normal and legitimate commercial operations i think if we couple yeah, it with what that, the hell does that mean well, it's a test that, and I, I think Boas actually makes this. This is not new. This is this is not a test that we have difficulties with, right? In Macdessy, we make we, we make Why? exactly that test. Um, you know, well, we could we could refine that quite nicely to say, you know, it's disproportionate, for example. And disproportionality is not hard for what us to test mean, because, though, as I just said, we do that in Macdessy. Yeah, but he, he, he's um, No, he yes, but the Supreme Court doesn't like that, do they? Really. It, that that was possible. They've rode back a wee yes, bit from. They have, yes. Um, they, they really it's don't. it's it's a it's a bit too woolly yeah. for them. I think the current. It's a bit too good good faith. It's a bit too it? uncertain um, and unpredictable. I think, I, I, yeah, I think Burroughs does say that. You... Well, that that is the shocking point about this judgment is just how much the word how much we hear about certainty. Yeah. Right, certainty is the key thread through the argument on this one. It's it's a real, but actually yeah. not surprising when we look yeah. at when we look at the composition yeah. of the Supreme Court here. We are we are looking at commercial lawyers on 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 the certainty right. point. Right. I think so. That that to me isn't yeah. much of a surprise. Um, but I don't have as much of a. I mean, I have a I have an issue with the subjective test itself. Why why it has to be subjective. When we get to the justification, and I think this might be a point, Maggie, you're going to pick up later, so I'll, I'll, I'll just brush over it quickly. I mean, generally, we use a subjective approach when it comes to fraud, for example, as well. Right? We have that that high bar um, in in those kind of cases, but I'm not sure it's 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 really necessary because ultimately we're talking about here behaviour that is being influenced by other objective behaviour, a threat. Um, that that they couldn't help. Now, what I I do have a difficulty with in this case is the idea of the monopoly. I don't think this is actually a monopoly case because after a while we're getting we're getting ridiculous on the idea of monopoly, right? Yes, there is only one person who provides milk to me on a Sunday morning at eight o'clock in my area. That doesn't make it a monopoly, right? Because I could have my milk delivered at eleven on a Sunday. And it doesn't mean yes, they built their whole business model here on on this, but the monopoly that they were they were the only ones selling direct flight tickets to Pakistan is such a narrow niche area that doesn't really make it in my mind a, a monopoly. It's not the only way to get to Pakistan, right? It's it's it, it would just not be a direct flight. So I I have a real issue here with calling this an actual monopoly. We can, well, we I, can... I don't think um, that the judgment uh, is is hanging anything no, on but... that word, is it? It's, no, no, uh, not it, really. No, they're, no. they're not but it getting keeps coming into up. what a, a monopoly is. So to an economics uh, student, uh, a monopoly, I think, from memory, would be 25% of the market. Yeah. But that's a sort of economic definition. Uh, but it doesn't fall at all in, into any of the reasoning here, though, does it? No, but all the judges have accept, accept as given that this is that this is a monopoly situation which should be regulated by Parliament. 
Well, I think every every single both Bo and um, and Hodge say say that in their judgment is uh, that that we're not going to re- regulate well, monopolies. Well, I suppose here. A, a, a severing as saying that uh, anti-competitive behaviour is the sort of thing that ought to only be policed by Parliament. It's not appropriate exactly. for judges. They don't have the resources and the research. Uh, capability in terms of judging any of that. That's entirely yeah. appropriate for the legislature. Yeah, I think, I think they, they use that because you're right, Tim, both sides, even though they are on the same <laughs> side, so, you know, um, both, both, <laughs> both the majority and the pretend minority, uh, let's say that. I mean, I read something quite interesting that uh, there was a, a comment by, by a, a law firm saying that Lord Hodge, the way he wrote his um, judgment was probably because he expected to be part of the majority. Uh, it is it is a lot more detailed uh, and argued, but yeah, I don't know whether we, we, we can say that. Uh, but the, I think I think both part both both well, sides. Well, what they do quite commonly, don't they, in terms mm. of practice, is to circulate drafts. So he he may have prepared a draft uh, speech and circulated it to the others yeah. on the panel. Uh, and and in that way, they they get natural agreement or identifying where they don't agree. Yes, no, no, yeah, yeah. I I can see that. Otherwise, they have a look at each other. Otherwise, they wouldn't say, you know, so Lord Borough yeah, says yeah, this, yeah. and I disagree, and whatever. But I think what I sense here is that even though, so it it's almost a reiteration of what. English law principles are all about. I can definitely see a stance on we don't need this woolly thing of good faith and that doesn't help. English law should not interfere with parties' business. Uh, and so I think that's why they make the reference to as long as it is okay with competition law and both Burroughs and Hodge refer to the same academics and, and, and refer to the same cases to show that actually what is uh, morally or um, uh, reprehensible has nothing to do and you know so therefore English law is about certainty and I wonder whether this is a reaction to some of the decisions that we have seen about relational contract and the call for more flexibility and the, the call for more uh, yeah cooperation I, I, I don't know whether that is the case but I think the one, perhaps I wonder whether, Tim, you meant about, you know, disagreeing that it is a monopoly. It is absolutely clear that in terms of size, TT was much smaller than PIAC. <clears throat> so I think in, in, in that sense, you know, and, and I think perhaps they, you know, all of them go into, especially Lord Hodge, actually, saying that, yes, they were of different sizes, but in the cases that they've used, they also made the point that actually just because you are big doesn't necessarily mean that this necessarily gives you an advantage. They, I, I think they were talking about uh, the Australian case, about that, that you know, the, the minority shareholders. But so it's not, I think not they just about size, is show it? That um, so the can... background here is about I know, dependency. I know, that's why. You Times know, they travel from... were entirely dependent. Yeah. On yes. Pakistan Airways, effectively under their own yeah. created business mm-hmm. model. Yeah. Arguably, yes, that you know they solely uh, relied on them. But in a way, when you have three hundred commission, yeah, uh, I, I can't remember was it every two weeks. Uh, so I think you know that in a way they didn't need anything else. They might have been smaller, but they were very profitable, uh, and maybe that was the source of it. Suddenly we thought, oh my goodness, you know we're paying so much on commission. But so so here, I think the. The, it's, it's almost the, the, the Supreme Court reasserting itself as what English law principles are all about and that we are going to only interfere into parties' business on really, really strict and limited background because both of them, the, whether they, uh, Lord Hodge and um, Lord Burroughs' criteria are slightly different, both of them are quite restrictive. They do say that the Yes, it's only yes. in extreme uh, circumstances, and it makes me think a little bit of. Uh, I know it's a slightly different uh, viewpoint, but it makes me think of what Professor Howard wrote in relation to an abuse of right. That you know, she does make the point that there, there might be a doctrine of right. It it it's all there, but it's only in limited. So here again, 
it's reasserting that we are the courts are only going to agree on a limited interference with parties' business. An unequal bargaining position is is nowhere near uh, enough to to be policed by the law. Yes, Mm. yeah, that 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 I have no trouble with. Um, I think it's just the way it's been phrased, whether I completely see the contour and the parameters of what is a lawful act of uh, duress. I mean, uh, the... just just to jump in there, so, so I, I, and I think we're all agreed, and I think the Supreme Court is agreed on the inequality of bargaining power has nothing to do with things, and I, I, I think that's, that's just... And I, I don't think that even... Even on the continent, that doesn't that doesn't play a role. It may be a factor in whether they've yeah. used good faith or not, but that that I mean that's 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 I think I think we all agreed on that. Um, I think the 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 key point here is the the subjective test that that Burroughs is bringing in, mm-hmm. and whether whether in itself it has to really be subjective. I mean, one one of the difficulties with this subjective test is that. That I have at least is that the other party has no way of influencing that. Right? I can I can tell the other party as many times as I want. No, you don't have that right. But so long as they subjectively believe it, that's tough. Yeah, Whereas and it's a question normally, of whether they will be believed in that protested belief. <laughs> yes. You see what I mean by that? If <laughs> your belief is so ridiculous. And yet you are coming across as otherwise a reasonable, sensible, intelligent person. Uh, you run the risk that the court won't believe you when you say you genuinely believed it. That's a difficult standard. You see what to, I, I mean, mean, that is really that. That would be. Well, I think that's what happens day to day in courts anyway, when the issue is uh, one of uh, honesty, if you like, or genuineness, uh, belief. Uh, it, it may come to a point when it looks so ridiculous that you are not believed. So why do we need that standard? Why do we need to? Because it's it, as far as I can see, the idea that that Bose is is peddling here is the fact that someone is exploiting the vulnerability of another, manoeuvring them into a situation in which they can't do anything else. Yeah, that is the and that is the mystery. Doesn't. Yes, and genuinely doesn't believe in the rightness of what he or she is doing. Why so does I that matter? I suppose he's he's uh, well, he's he's using CTN cash and carry and what Lord Hoffman said about mm-hmm. um, it. It it was a comment he made, I think, in that case. Everyone will know it better than me, but um, about uh, a finding that the party genuinely believed that they were in the right. Uh, with making the demands that they were making. They thought the law was on their side and that was a genuine belief. So Lord Burroughs has picked that up and is running with it now uh, to make that the test, if you like, uh, at the Supreme Court level. So that's where I think it's come from. But apart from that, those comments in CTN Cash and Carry, I'm not sure that there is a very solid foundation generally across English contract law for this sort of test, you know, where else is it used? It's used in unilateral mistake. You know, you make a mistake and I know that you have made that mistake. So there's some subjectivity in terms of me then. But Ah, but there's an, there, there's an objective addition in there from centre of interest, which is all they ought to yes, have. Yes, OK, but there's a bit of... There's a so bit there of, is an objective standard. All right, there's, but there's a bit of subjectivity in there. So uh, almost really what you're saying to me, Tim, now is, is indicating what, what I'm trying to say in that subjectivity tends not to be an important test for the common law. So to suddenly run with it now with economic duress, it jars a bit. You know, you look at it and you think, well, where the hell's that exactly. come from? Yeah. So I, I, and I think that's that's where we've got yeah. common ground. So I like the test. I, th- I think the test is quite right. And I think when when Lord Hodge says, well, okay, it's it's bad faith is then coming from content and context. So long as we can say that that's an objective standard, I I think I think that's the middle ground. Personally, I think that's the middle middle ground here. That, and that's why I'm I was I'm I'm on the fence. Is that I? Well, I suppose Lord Hodge would say this lack of genuine belief would be a factor exactly. in deciding whether it's yeah. unconscionable, yeah. but only only a factor. 
whereas Lord Burroughs wants it to be root and branch the central test. And that's why Severine was saying half an hour ago that actually Lord Burroughs' approach is narrower than the majority. And I think I would agree with her that because this lack of uh, honest belief in your own situation and your, the status of the rights that you're purporting to have would be part of an unconscionability test, but not the end of the test. But perhaps where the objectivity comes in in burrows is when you know the element of the not the victim but the other which name escapes me you know threatening the party creates or increases the vulnerability so that is an object yeah. you know but yes that, that, that's one yeah. way of yeah, yeah. looking at it yeah. does it or does it not it's neither you know it's either they do or they don't and so therefore here on the fact it's reasonable. Well, not not. Yes, it reasonably is easy to to assess. But so that would perhaps be one element where the objectivity can be. Or there is an element of. I mean, don't you think it's it's difficult to nail down uh, a, a definition of bad faith? Certainly, we can have descriptions of bad faith, but I can see the difficulty at Supreme Court level to nail it down suitably, narrowly and precisely as a well, guidance that yeah. would cover all events, as it were. That That's a real problem, isn't it? You can, they can give examples that they mean uh, forgery, misrepresentation, blackmail, cheating, playing on fears, exploiting fears. Um, unconscionability is hard to define exhaustively, but in essence that's the sort of thing that you you know you it's kind of like an elephant you know you may have difficulty just dis describing or defining it but oh, if well, you I have see it you that know sentence. that it's well, I think, there so both of them both of them go, so I, <laughs> I think they do indeed try to, you know what, what is referred by lord uh, burrows as the bad faith uh, demand yeah. i think the bad faith demand is a mixture of a knowing that what you know, that you don't really believe that you have a, a right to do that. But yeah. there is also the notion of opportunistic behavior. And I think that's where, what I was saying earlier, that they really are trying to, uh, you know, move away from all these, uh, you know, good faith, etc. Because here they would have had an opportunity to um, define a bit more what is it that they mean by the bad faith demand. So aside the, 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 the absence of belief that they have a, a right to do, I think here it's also coupled with the opportunistic behaviour that seemed to be talked about uh, in uh, Bates, uh, in Al-Nehayan and all these cases which were on, 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 on good faith that aside, you know... They... I thought we might get there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I've got it here. Back to good faith, but so the the, the I'm, I'm almost I'm almost amazed that the opportunistic behaviour was not defined and 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 talked more because I think there is an element uh, to it, and and both uh, Hodge and 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 Burroughs uh, do mention it, but almost to say, okay, we don't need to talk about it. So uh, by the by the same way they have. Um, looked at uh, this notion of legitimate interest uh, and 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 the disproportion and and said that it's not it, it doesn't help us here and 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 they've dismissed it. So I think you know they know, but you are right, Maggie. It so that's why it goes back to what I was saying. It's a very traditional decision going back yeah. to yeah. you know commercial certainty. You're right, Tim. I you know I think it would be interesting to do a search on the document to see how much. How many times they do refer to uh, commercial certainty in, in all these cases, um, and 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 all these you know traditionally you know classical doctrinal uh, themes. Yes, it is. It is very classical. I, I think I agree with you, Sarah. It's almost Victorian. Yes, yes. In, in its outlook of yeah. um, you know the free market is yeah. all is king. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and to borrow your French again and say it, mangle it, laissez-faire. Yeah, no, yeah, th yeah. That, that yeah. is such an yeah. important, yeah. dominant yeah. feature yeah. for traditional classical yeah. English law. And this yeah. is so obviously so here. Yeah, yeah. And I think the judges even say it almost in those words, which is, yes, they had a, you know, there, there was a monopoly position. But if they didn't want that, 
they should have put it in the contract, yeah. which is one of the oldest sentences. I think Hugh Beale uh, references this fairly, fairly often as being one of the most traditional English positions, which is if you didn't want this to happen, well, you could have put it into the contract and you're two commercial parties. Yeah. So, in other words, if they wanted more protection, in other well, the words... The answer to that is because of the I- imbalance in uh, bargaining position, they could have asked and perhaps they did ask, but they weren't going to get. Yeah. Well, in that case, I think the idea is don't build your business model on it, right? Or, or, or insure yourself against it in some kind of way. Well, indeed. And do you not see that there is some sort of analogy going on here with the uh, Marks and Spencers and Baird case? Yes. Where you've got a, a, little, a little supplier, Baird's, wholly dependent on M&S to um, have their regular contracts being placed and then the plug is pulled and they have literally not a leg and to I, stand I, I would almost say that Baird was worse in the sense that there were certain expectations that were created by being a supplier of M&S. So I don't think in this case Pakistan... In- but not by anything that M&S said or did. That's the problem. The expectations are, are built on hope. <laughs> rather than legal right. I agree with the second part, right. rather than legal right, but I think it was a, a an expectation that was generally created um, and, and probably by M&S to a certain extent. But even if it had been, I don't think it would have made any difference because there's nothing, there's no contract, there's no... no but you as know. you were saying, uh, to, to quote uh, Professor Beale, you know, if Baird had wants something different... They should have asked for something concrete as a, you know, a contract is what we're talking about as lawyers. And they may have, who knows, they may have asked and M&S told them where to go. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we're surprisingly, we're surprisingly all on the same page here, despite all these references to good faith and bad faith. (laughs) That's going, that's going a little far. You mean we're we're in agreement? (laughs) This is the time to end this podcast, listener, because it's not going to be very interesting if we're in agreement. The one time in history that this happens. Quit while you're ahead. Um, uh, What what I find in... (laughs) I can't remember, Tim, though. Did you get off the fence? Are you pro-Lord Burroughs or Lord... Well, that's interesting. So I like like Lord (laughs) Burroughs' argument, and I think, as such, the subjective test isn't something that's radically new in the sense that we use it in other areas, i.e. Ford, for example, right? We're requirement a subjective state of mind. I don't see necessarily why we need it. I think this could be done through other objective tests. Um, In other words, could, could they have known better? Um, would would probably solve that. So I am much more pro Hodgian, I suppose. I am Hodgian here, and you're a, you, you two are more Burrowsian. I'm, I'm not sure Severine is. So are <laughs> you Severine? Well, I, I, I thought you were you Hodgian. No, I mean I I can you know I, I oh think have, have I worn you down, Severine? Um, <laughs> I, I understand exactly where their differences lie. Um, the uh, Lord Burrows is quite beautiful but yes I, I i think you know by the fact that it it is you know more subjective and 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 narrower yes i think i would have to you know go with a slightly wider one and so but i yes <laughs> <laughs> yes yes i've got severine on the side i can feel it the other thing the other thing which um oh i had something uh and i've lost the the the, the thread of of my thought that I wanted to say again another way another reason why it was quite a traditional one okay ignore me Tim you will have to oh no this this stays out. in from now on we're, 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 we we take everything <laughs> everything is, is is published yes I think I think yes. the read the listener rather has uh, managed to work it out by now that there is not a lot of strict editing oh no 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 on. we don't we the editing is is fairly lax on the on this podcast it, um, it's it's what's called a live event live tv live radio isn't it thrilling. isn't it just maybe maybe we'll be invited to the BBC yeah. at some point with our uh, <laughs> um, oh, I, I would not. like to I get uh, so the 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 interesting part I thought was and, and that I thought maybe, maybe I've missed it in other judgments but I thought in this one this this fairly regular referencing of deliberately creating an increased increasing a party's vulnerability is is it me or is that seems new to me yes that's that's or at least a reference to vulnerability as a, as an idea. Now I don't want to go off into the topic of vulnerability in itself, but this this idea that we're taking that that seems to me to be quite a novel addition 
I wonder whether this is the uh, part of my argument about the sort of uh, subliminal influence of equity approach. So you say, ah, okay, so the translation of equity is now coming into... Well, unconscionable conduct. Yes, because they, they they have taken this concept of unconscionability straight from equity. So I think playing on someone's vulnerability would be something traditionally that equity would have looked at very hard. But I think where perhaps, you know, they have gone, all all of them have gone through a, quite a wide brush as to where the law does interfere. I think where I don't, so the word vulnerability in itself is interesting, but I think that was indeed implied into the categories. I think maybe it has not been, here, here they, what Burroughs is doing is putting all of the, giving it a, a name. But yeah, here, yeah. the I agree with you, Maggie, that whether you were illiterate or, you know, there were certain categories. So where, perhaps where the, where the novelty is, is to put all those categories into one and that you are vulnerable in some ways or another. And so, but I don't know well, whether unconscionability. that is entirely. Unconscionability. Well, for example, what about blackmail? Blackmail. To, to threaten to report someone for a crime is not per se uh, illegal. It's doing it for gain. And that would be a problem under the Theft Act. Uh, but that's sort of working on someone's vulnerability because of the weak position. So that, that that's that's Bo's argument when he when he talks about it's not so much the threat but the 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 the, the bad faith nature of the demand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the reason that's for only the it. first. What, what are you, why yeah. are you making that? Yeah. Threat? That's only the first part of the test. I mean, the second the, the second part is then deliberately creating the vulnerability. So I would have thought that's the. That's that's the new addition. So, so the the blackmailing part would be the the bad yes. faith demand, as it were, whereas the vulnerability would be an additional tag on. Um, and I also, think interestingly, from memory, if that the case that they referred to was Borelli and Ting. That's right. That's right. Which is a is a company yes. one and a, a, a liquidation situation. So the Ford. director there was lying and not helping the liquidator, yes. although he was obliged to do that as a former officer of the company. So I think they had they'd taken that case as a as an illustration, possibly, yes, and I think of they mentioned- this manoeuvring a party, because uh, he was manoeuvring the liquidator into a corner. Mm. Yes, and Progress Bulk Carrier, I think, is another one that they, if I remember correctly... But I mean, so unconscionability. I mean, I've always had a bit of an allergic reaction, I think, to to, to the word unconscionable, uh, unconscionability. Um, well, that it seems would be to me because to be you're very a common American. lawyer, exactly, not, a, not an equity lawyer. An equity lawyer Aha! would have no difficulty with this at all. <laughs> That's <laughs> because uh, most uncon- of the most of contract law is common law, isn't it, Tim? So yes, this yeah, jars yeah. with you because well, it's equity. Students who are studying equity would have no difficulty, no difficulty with that word at all. That this is the point about these different branches of law. I I take that. Yes. Okay. When I think of unconscionability, it's more the American conception of un- broad, you know, in line with good faith kind of thing. That might be also add to ah, it. Okay. Um, no, we, I don't think we use it. No, like exactly. That, do we? Um, but the unconscionability always seemed to for, for me to go back to the behaviour rather than the vulnerability of the other party. So it seems to me that the unconscionability aspect is 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 the behaviour rather than the, the yes, situation of the, the other. Yes, but the vulnerability, the position of the other party is always going to be relevant, Absolutely, yes, it? yes, it because, is. Because yeah. uh, you, you can't manipulate and abuse someone who's as strong as you, if not stronger. It's, it's sort of yeah. what we're looking at is commercial bullying, in a sense, isn't it? Well, yes and no. The, you know, there you, you can, can yeah. you know, so that's where the, you know, I think it is an Australian case, okay, so only persuasive, but where the court, that's what I was saying earlier, that you know both have gone into a lot of detail to show that actually the the fact that TT was smaller in size in itself no. is not no. enough and not arguably relevant so if you are 
in a position of strength. You can be in a position of strength from being smaller. Yes, it's it's not the size per se. It's yeah, size doesn't matter. Indeed not. I have to say this. I'm only five foot three. How how tall are you, Severing? Oh, I, well, I'm, I'm one meter sixty three. So I don't know how many. I was going to say, oh, say no, it in no. proper. How, how typical! You've done it in the continental oh, no. measurement. Yeah, no, still, still, still continental measurement. Uh, and I don't know what it is in feet. Um. I think I think that has to be the title or the the description of our yeah. show today. Um, well, so I'm definitely getting matter. something. Size doesn't matter. Oh dear! Oh, baggy. No, um, that is a bad one. <laughs> Let's not do. <laughs> I try this. Uh, lovely things come in small packages. There we go. I think we're, we're, we'll roll with that one. That's our t- show title for the, for this episode. <laughs> is, it, is it time uh, to give up? Excellent. Then with this? Excellent. Well, I don't. I don't know. Have we have we reached a conclusion? Where are I, we? I quite like the elegance of Burroughs, but given that it is probably narrower in terms of my leaning onto the role of the law. I think Hodge is probably easier to apply. So by the fact that it is easier to apply. I will take that as agreement. But as a typical lawyer answer, I am edging my bed by saying, but. (laughs) It's a grudging. I almost need to read the case, uh, to to reread the the judgment, because there is an awful lot. It is a long judgment from both. um, and, And both of them, you know, go into length to say, I agree with you. I think Lord Hodge starts, you know, the first few words is there is a lot that we have in common or there is a lot that I agree with. And I think uh, Burroughs probably does the same. Hence, that's what I thought I was looking forward to reading. Yeah. Okay. There there are a lot of points of agreement, but... A couple of, of yeah, divergent, yeah. and I think yeah. I'll I'll say I'm going to remain on the fence a little bit, <laughs> um, but definitely leaning leaning on the Burroughs side. As in, I I like I like the test. I think the test is 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 great, and I I would just combine it with a tad of more of a, removing that subjective element and possibly the combination then of Beale and Burroughs as a test. I think would work perfectly. So we're almost there. <laughs> he almost got it right. Okay, great. Well, uh, is that the point where we should? leave dear listener in peace I think so I think yeah. so and we might we might want to remind our our dear listeners of course that they can contact us by email with questions ideas suggestions and I can't think of any other words but you know what I mean by emailing us at unpacking.contract yeah, any case you'd like us to look absolutely at. yes email us at unpacking.contract.law at gmail.com and we'll read it yes that's about as far as our promises will go but we'll read it thank you very much thank you very much thank you bye bye bye